Welcome to the Fully Disclosed Podcast. I'm Kim Harrison. Like you, my roles are multifaceted. Wife, mom, granny, Bible teacher, and writer. But I'm convinced the best thing of all is simply belonging to Jesus. And the greatest thrills are discovering Him at every turn. After all, He promises that those who ask receive, they that seek find, and to those who knock, the door will be opened. Everything fully disclosed. For in Him we have everything God is and everything man is intended to be. Bottom line, my favorite things about reading a novel, any novel, are the redemptive elements of happy endings. I'm intrigued by flawed characters who I find myself rooting for. Villains, I like them well-defined, but not so odious that they haunt my memory with their presence months after I've closed the book. And of course, I want to know what motivates the protagonist, the main character, What are her longings? What are his hopes? And if those are misguided, I want the author to help me as the reader see what the main character has not yet discovered. And probably most of all, I want the author to have such a clear grasp of the plot and characters that I'm guided easily down a path of twists and turns before arriving at a happy conclusion, which may be a twist in and of itself as characters discover something better than the end they initially pursued. Probably no genre of literature fits that bill better for me than the 19th century British classics. Could I single out a favorite? Uh, I might be able to narrow it to three or four, but many books check the boxes of what draws me in as a reader. I love the romance of Jane Austen and her perceptive observations of people and her ability to find humor in the ridiculous. In the same way, I am taken aback by George Eliot and her discerning perceptions of the inner person as the reader may find something of themselves exposed as much as those of her characters. I love Thomas Hardy, Mary Shelley, Elizabeth Gaskell, Anthony Trollope. And who composes more beautiful literature than the Brontes? Emily may edge out her sister in giftedness here, but likewise, every sentence Charlotte constructs is a work of art and genius. And Jane Eyre, for me, ah, is the creme de la creme. Mm. And of course, there's Charles Dickens. I can narrow my favorite between two of his 15 novels, David Copperfield and Our Mutual Friend. His motto, make them laugh, make them cry, make them wait, is evident in these two as well as all of his other works. He was a master of satire, puns, and wordplay, while also weaving in a keen awareness of social wrongs. And his characters, wow, some simply leap off the page and live in the heart. Some are so well-drawn that they've taken on a sort of cultural life of their own. Those like Ebenezer Scrooge, Uriah Heep, Tiny Tim, the Artful Dodger, Smike, and the jilted Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, who we find still wearing her wedding dress well into midlife after having been jilted at the altar. And the clocks in her house frozen to that very hour. And an indistinguishable wedding cake on a table draped in cloth linens, covered in cobwebs and black fungus, with spiders and blotchy bodies living in it and living off of it. Such an image of a type of black and blotchy bitterness that, if left unchecked, can consume the soul. Dickens carried over such memorable characters into his final novel and only mystery, the mystery of Edwin Drood. Drood, a well-heeled orphan who, together with his fiancée, the beautiful and beguiling Rosa Budd, mutually calls off their pre-arranged engagement. She is also an orphan, with both sets of parents having predetermined their match. Just after the breakup, Drood goes missing, and the reader is convinced that his uncle, John Jasper, has murdered him. 
Jasper is an opium addict by night and a distinguished choir leader by day and not much older than his nephew who is unaware of his uncle's deep and passionate love for Rosa, matched only by his dark and all-consuming envy of himself, Edwin Drood. Jasper attempts to indict Rosa's friend Neville Landless in the murder, whose sister Helena is Rosa's best friend. Has Edwin Drood merely disappeared only to return as a twist in the story? And if not, who murdered him? What becomes of Rosa and Jasper and all of the memorable characters introduced throughout the story? Well, it's a mystery and certainly not my place to reveal to you the ending. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. As believers follow Jesus day by day, as we pursue the Christ-like life, it isn't long before we face a kind of riddle. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul said that great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. We are a part of a story, his story, a story that he is unfolding. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. According to Romans 12.3, he has allotted to every person a measure of faith. Faith itself is his gift to give. And what he begins in the life of a believer through faith, he perfects. He is the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. He is the beginning of the new life and he finishes the new life. It is his story to reveal in each of us and in the final glorification when we will be united with him. And we know how the story in us begins. It begins with the author of our faith initiating a relationship with us. John 6:44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So as Jesus initiates salvation in each of us, we respond with the measure of faith he has given to us, first in repentance. In Luke 5:32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. For salvation to occur, the sinner must realize he is a sinner and recognize his fallen state. Turning his back on a self-centered, sinful path, doing an about-face, and walking in the opposite direction in pursuing God's purpose and will, seeking a life of godliness from now on. As the sinner repents, he must admit that he can't save himself. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Attempting a works-based salvation is no salvation at all. As Isaiah 64, 6 warns us, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. At the heart of salvation is the sinner's acknowledgement and admission that he needs a Savior, that he cannot save himself. Next, the sinner turns from trusting in himself for salvation to the only one qualified to save him, Jesus Christ. It's a matter of faith, of trust, of belief, and Jesus becomes the object of that faith. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This belief is evidenced by turning to Jesus, coming to Jesus, receiving Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves report how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. 
In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 1, 12 and 13 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus, as the author of our faith, responds to the measure of faith he has given to us. And as we trust him, he saves us, gives us a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The believer is now recreated in Christ for good works, not to achieve salvation, but because he has received salvation. So the sinner responds to Jesus with the measure of faith Christ has given him, turns from sin, and trusts in Jesus to save him. All of the hard work was accomplished at the cross. Salvation is hard work, and only Jesus could accomplish it, and he did. If it was left up to you or to me, we could not be saved. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus saves us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What was a mystery before the cross is a mystery no more. As Ephesians 1.9 says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul does not speak of mystery in this verse. He speaks confidently. He knows Jesus alone has the power to save sinners, and Jesus alone has the power to remake the soul in his image. While salvation is justification, the process of being set apart, being made holy or sacred, is called sanctification. Justification is what happens when a person is born again, when he receives salvation. In fact, justification is such a thorough completion that the converted soul has already been made perfect from heaven's perspective, from the perspective of the Father, and that's the only perspective that matters. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes the redemptive work of atonement as an exchanged life. Jesus takes the blame for my sin, and I receive the credit for his righteousness. That's justification. And on the basis of having been made righteous through him, I live out that righteousness. Or as we shall see in a few minutes, I work out that salvation with fear and trembling in the day-to-day -day living going forward. That's sanctification. So, sanctification is the continual work of cleansing and remaking of the soul in his image day-to-day. -day. A sanctified life no longer lives for herself. We are set apart for his purpose and will and work. Justification happens at the moment of salvation. Sanctification is a continual process after that, until the soul is perfected in glorification when he returns. Colossians 3.4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Jesus is the source of our salvation, that is our justification. He is the source of our sanctification. He remakes the soul in his image, a soul set apart. And he is the source of our glorification, when we will appear with him in his glory and in our glorified state. Hear these words of 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, 
we will also bear the image of the heavenly. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. As John said, it hasn't appeared yet what we will be. We can't see our future glory with the physical eye. It is beyond even our imagination. But as faith becomes conviction, we trust him that we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Faith allows the believer to see the future, the unseen life, as guaranteed fact. But for now, it is a hidden life. We have died, and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. The full glory of the sanctified life, the life set apart, the new life that is made in his image, will not be entirely revealed until Jesus returns. We know we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. This is our hope, and becomes our ambition, really, to invest this temporal life, the life described as a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away, to invest it in the next life, the eternal one, the one with eternal glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And listen to this. Oh, this is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Justification, sanctification, glorification, all are his gifts to give to us. All are his to work in us. Romans 14.4 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You may doubt another's faithfulness. Another may question your faithfulness. But the issue is really not our faithfulness. Salvation and sanctification is in his faithfulness. As 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The author of our faith also perfects our faith. The one who begins a good work in the life of a believer perfects that life until the day of his return. Philippians 2.12 and 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This passage provides some important truths regarding the sanctified life. Verse 12 describes the believer's role in sanctification. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The sanctified life is to be motivated only by the all-seeing eye of God, regardless of who else may be watching. 
We are not to be distracted by a self-deceiving brashness of leading a double life, part-time God-pleaser, part-time man-pleaser. James 4.4 says that anyone who tries to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. No wonder Paul was so pleased to learn that those in the church of Philippi were obeying the Lord, especially in Paul's absence. Evidence that they had fixed their eyes and motives on the author and perfecter of faith and weren't motivated by pleasing Paul. Philippians 2.12 also says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is so helpful. The original language interpreted here as fear and trembling indicates an approach, not of terror and dread, but one of seriousness, a sense of gravity toward working out our salvation. You can think of it in the way a brain surgeon likely approaches surgery. No matter the number of times he has previously entered the operating room, his posture requires the same earnestness and solemnity with each case. Likewise, we are to work out our salvation with the same earnestness and solemnity each day, because the condition of the world is so grave, and the eternity for souls without Christ is so dire, that our spiritual growth and maturity takes on an urgent magnitude. Christ has set us apart as lights in the world, as ambassadors on His behalf, and we represent Him to the world, be reconciled to God. No haphazard, apathetic presence and testimony will do, but a sense of the weight of the task that has been entrusted to us. Verse 13 emphasizes the truth that sanctification is the work of God. It says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us everything we need to enable our will and our ability to work according to His good pleasure. So again, in Philippians 2.12, we have an emphasis on our part regarding the sanctified life. And in Philippians 2.13, we have the declaration that He is the one at work to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Allow me to explain this by examining some of the miracles of Jesus, okay? Here we go. During Jesus' first official appearance of his public ministry at a wedding in Cana, he performed his first public miracle by changing water into wine. John 2, 6-9 records what happens. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now think about this. Jesus could have changed the water into wine without any assistance from the servants. So why did he have them pour the water into the pots and draw it out? And as you think about this miracle today, do you think the servants contributed anything to the actual miracle? Or were their actions merely the evidence that Jesus had accomplished it? What about this miracle recorded in Luke 5, 4 through 9? 
When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. So think about this. Jesus could have filled the nets without any assistance from the disciples letting down the nets. So why did he have the disciples participate in the catch? And as you think about this miracle today, do you think the disciples contributed anything to the actual miracle? Or did their actions merely confirm the fact that Jesus had filled them? And what about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? In Matthew 14, 16-17 is recorded this, But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. In Matthew 14, 19-21, Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. Jesus could have provided the feast for the people without the five loaves of bread and two fish. He could have distributed the food by his own hand after he blessed it. But he handed his provision to the disciples to disperse. Why? And do you think the fact that by passing the food through their hands, the disciples deserve part of the credit for this miracle? Huh. And regarding the man born blind in John 9, 6-7, records this. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, Jesus could have touched the blind man's eyes or simply spoken the words for the miracle to occur. So why did he have the blind man wash in the pool of Siloam? And as you think back on this miracle, do you think the blind man should receive part of the glory for the miracle being accomplished? Or was this a miracle due only to the power and work of Jesus? Do you see the point? Though we obey the things the Father tells us to do in working out our salvation, He is the one who is at work within us to will and to work according to His good pleasure. And when you think about it, how simple really are the things that he asks of us in the grand scheme of how he is able to take and use our small and insignificant offerings to accomplish his will and work. But in the final analysis, it is his work, not ours, and he deserves the glory. And yet it gives our small efforts even more value, does it not? Because the emphasis and the focus switches from our work to his and what he is able to do when we obey him in prayer, when we obey in Bible study, when we obey him in witnessing and everything else he asks us to do. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, 
Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The sad ending to the mystery of Edwin Drood, Charles Dickens' final novel, is the fact that we can never know the ending. Just a few hours after he concluded the halfway point in his book, he died, taking all the secrets with him to the grave. Any attempt by any other author to finish the story, and there have been several, simply are not authentic. Only the original author can finish his work for it to be an authentic ending and therefore an authentic story. There is a warning here for us too. We must not allow anything else to come in and try to write the chapters and the ending to the story of our lives that Jesus, the author of our faith, is writing and has written. For he is the perfecter of our faith. He is the redeemer of our lives. He is the only one who can finish the narrative of your life the way he desires, if your life is to have any authenticity to it. He is creator. He is savior. We cannot allow the pen to pass like a baton from the hand of the creator to a counterfeit. As affliction and persecution seeps in, as the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things come in, attempting to substitute a forgery for the original manuscript of our lives, written in the author's own blood. I'll close with the words to a hymn, one that is such a beautiful prayer of the consecrated, sanctified life. I'll also include the words in the program notes. Maybe you will find it helpful to guide you in prayer over and over again. Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to Thee, Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine alone. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>